Spoiler alert, it's Geek Top 5! Yay! Spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Cripes, you people. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And these are the top five things that are happening and about to happen to geeks over the last couple of weeks. I just want to ask, are we actually spoiling anything this episode? Man, I don't actually think... (laughs) It'll come up, I swear it will. I mean, how many people have watched The Shining? You never know. I mean, fair enough. All right. (laughs) So... Number five is we are going to get a movie of The Shining 2, even shinier. Yes, uh, better known as Dr. Sleep. Uh, It was released in 2013, and the original novel came out in 1977. The original movie came out in 1980. This movie will be coming out in 2018, 2019. It won't actually be called even shinier. No, no. But it's, uh, you know, similar timelines here. I think in the the novel, it's a real-time thing. So the the same amount of time has passed in the real world as it has in the novel from... Certainly the the novel is The Shining, the next generation. It's it's the kid from The Shining who's all grown up, and now he's having relations with a kid of his own. Well, I don't think it's his kid. But, yeah, but there is another kid to his adult now. It turns out... Uh, he, he and the the chef from the Overlook Hotel aren't the only people with The Shining. And, uh-huh. Yeah, and there's these bad guys who are traveling around and, uh, you know, they, they eat people with the shiny power. So it's a, it was a cool book. Uh, I, I'm not a huge Stephen King guy, but I found when I read it, there were, you know, it felt like it, he was really stretching to hit that thousand-page mark at points. <laughs> Which I yeah. didn't feel with the original. The original one, I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. And the the sequel novel, there were definitely some ebbs and flows in my interest in it. Well, I mean, The Shiny is the third book I think he ever wrote. And, third uh, published, probably. Do- Dr. Sleep is like the 50th or 60th. <laughs> like 300th, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying, at some point, he's only got so much in him. Uh, I'm not a huge Stephen King guy either, but I have a list of favorites. I really like the guy's writing. I'm rereading it again as we speak. But, anyway, the point is, so we're getting this new movie. Um, it's coming from the director of Gerald's Game. Which, Another Stephen King adaptation. Yeah. I so, think that novel came out in 1992. That one was fairly well received, so it seems like this guy has got sort of a, you know, a stick. He can do Stephen King in movies fairly well, and now I guess he's upping his game. Yeah. Um, and one of the interesting things is that, like, yeah, The Shining was a good book, and The Shining was a good movie. Uh, it's one of those classics. It's Stanley Kubrick. I mean, how can well, you go yeah. wrong? Uh, the question, though, though, is: is this going? Is this is the plot of the movie Doctor Sleep going to be a sequel to The Shining, the movie, or Shining, the novel? Because there are differences. Yeah, and uh, apparently Stephen King was not thrilled with a lot of the differences in the the Kubrick adaptation. Yeah, which I mean, he's an author; he has that right. Um, the the big the, the one that I think King actually mentioned. Which is honestly doesn't seem like that big a deal to me. Is that in the novel they burn down the hotel, and in the movie they don't. Right. So have the hotel burned down sometime in the last forty years? Like, that doesn't seem like that big a deal to me. But that I guess that's a big thing if you're because I, mean, I mean here you go spoiler alert because the the <laughs> climax of Doctor Sleep happens like at you know the ruins of where the hotel used to be. Hmm. But it doesn't seem like it's that hard to rewrite it to take place back in the hotel. Yeah, like just that, have it be like this abandoned wreck, and yeah. that almost makes it scarier. Right, yeah, that, that really works for movies. You can have all the shots that are the same shots from The Shining, like of the big staircase or in the bar. Except it's all dilapidated and, and like nature is, is reclaiming it. Right, it writes itself. Yeah. Filmmaking seems like, like... You know, we should do it. We should. We should see, <laughs> yeah. see, see we can beat this Gerald's game guy. Uh, whose name is uh, Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan, thank you. That's just probably important. <laughs> probably better than Charles Game Guy. Yeah. He also has got some credit. He's done uh, some other horror movies like Oculus and uh, whatnot. So he's he's definitely a big horror director. Uh, Gerald's Game was a direct to Netflix. Well, this is a Warner Brothers production, so it'll almost certainly get a theatrical release. Uh, Akiva Goldsman has been on board as a writer for a few years. He is uh, a writer on the Star Trek Discovery series. Yeah. Um, he won an Oscar for writing uh, A Beautiful Mind. But he also wrote Batman Forever and Batman and Robin and uh, Lost in Space, the movie. So, I mean, he, but he has written an Oscar award-winning thing, right? Like, sure, we never wrote Batman Forever, but we never wrote A Beautiful Mind either. I, I mean, like. by that logic, we've never won an Oscar, but we've also never won a Razzie. Well, yes, okay, that's fair. <laughs> 
So I don't know. Yeah, he's 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 got a mixed bag as far as his credits go. Mm-hmm. But people seem pretty happy with him doing Stephen King. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah, it's one of those things. Like, is this a sequel that anybody really needs? I mean, and I sort of apply that to the novel as well. Yeah. Like, did The Shining really need to have The Shining Part Two? Maybe. I mean, certainly, I feel like the tone of The Shining was a lot different from that of Doctor Sleep. Mm. Like, you know, an ethereal threat in that weird way that Stephen King does. It's not like it's magic, but not really touched on it. Whereas in Doctor Sleep, it's like these immortal psychic eaters, yeah, like, who travel around in RVs and are just creepy. Yeah, like, it, it, it seems a little more Buffy villain. Then sort of supernatural yeah. dread, so... Eh, eh, eh. What I'm coming out and saying is that I wasn't the, the biggest fan, but maybe that actually works better in a movie than it does in a book. Yeah. Way too early to say. Um, we, don't, we, we have no idea what this is going to look like or how it's going to be put together. Uh, but if you're a big Stephen King fan, it's good news. So we'll wait and see. Number four on the list... Uh, just today, I think. I, well, okay, today is Friday. So, so two days ago or so, if you're listening to this, uh, saw the release of Dragon Ball Fighter, either Fighter Z because Dragon Ball Z, or Dragon Ball Fighters with a Z because Twitter speak. Right. I've I've heard both. I've looked into this. Anyway, new Dragon Ball fighting game that's out there. The Dragon Ball fighting games have sort of a weird pedigree in the video games. They've never been the big fighting games, Mortal Kombat. Street Fighter, Tekken, Tekken, yeah. but they've but they they have their fans. Like there's always those people who've played all the Dragon Ball fighting games. This is a pure reinvention of it. Um, it comes from Arc System Works. It's a tag team, three versus three. Right? I think like Marvel versus Capcom in the good old days. We've talked about it a bit on the show before when it was first announced, and it's worth mentioning again because it looks gorgeous. It looks like the animated series. Yeah, yeah. but like. A really high budget version of the animated series. You know, it's like the animated series, but with these really cool, not quite 3D, but very depth of field, including backgrounds and stuff. Right. It's, I mean, audio isn't the best format to discuss graphics and visual appearances, but if you've ever been a fan of the Dragon Ball series, go look up a trailer or a gameplay video of this because it looks great. It's getting pretty good reviews. It's a cool fighting game. It has all the usual features. We're not going to make a big commercial for it. What was interesting, though, is it's getting a lot of regard because it has these really easy, flexible controls. Fighting games, usually you have like your two characters and like you know, a punch button or a kick button, whatever, and then you sort of dial in like extra long combinations of buttons to do their super moves, right? Yeah, and you know, there's there are certain commonalities, but. By and large, every character has slightly different ones that do slightly different things. Yeah, so you have to remember, so, you know, down, down, forward, forward, punch is the fireball. For one character. For one character. Then another character has, like, you know, hold down to crouch for two seconds, then up and kick to do something. And they get silly, and it adds, I guess, a measure of skill to this, but lately we've seen fighting games sort of moving away from that. Um, The... And the reason why they do this is because people who are really hardcore into fighting games, like the people who like play it for money to win, yeah, tournaments the, and whatnot. Yeah, those people always describe fighting games as a like, like a game of chess, where you have like these two opposing sides, and you know each one like picks a move, and there's always an appropriate counter move. So it's like maybe this character does a high kick. And then, like, the response to that is to block, or this character does this attack, and he can jump, and the other one jumps over it. So the game is anticipating what the opponent is going to do, or reacting very quickly to what they do, and then in your stable of moves, do what you can to counter it. But that's kind of impacted if you can't remember the combo to dial. Right. So we've seen this thing in fighting games where they've started to say, well, maybe you don't have to do, you know, punch, punch, forward, low kick, hold R, spin around the circle three times, sneeze, yeah. like to end up doing like a cool fire uppercut or something. We've seen them dialing it back. And we saw this uh, a little bit in Marvel vs. Capcom 3 with a simple mode. Um, we saw this in the 2013 Killer Instinct with their combo assist move. Dragon Ball has a light attack, a medium attack, a heavy attack, and a special button. If you want to do combos, you just press the attack button a lot. Attack, 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 your character will do a cool combo. The idea that they do with this is that anyone can pick this controller up and know how to play that character. The game is figuring out when to use what moves, not how. 
And I think uh, another aspect to it is is your control sticks get involved in in the moves, but I think they seem a bit more intuitive. You know, if Goku needs to bring his hand behind him to do an attack, you spin the stick so that you're pulling his hands behind him as opposed to any number of things that you would have to do to do something similar in, you know, Injustice 2. Right. Now, we're not huge fighting game aficionados. Neither of us is ever going to make it to EVO. Um, but we played Street Fighter growing up. We played, you know, my wife and I had a good Mortal Kombat rivalry going for a while. You are definitely more into it than I am. Fair enough. But I think both of us hit the point in those games where we realized that we're never going to get any better than this. You know, it's yeah. like I'm never going to remember. Like I'm not going to sit down and memorize all these different attacks and all these different buttons and when to do what. At some point, it's just pressing buttons and seeing what happens, and maybe you win and maybe you don't. Yeah. Whereas the people who are pros wipe the floor with that kind of opponent. Like the kind of people who can watch and tell by inches or video game by pixels how far away the two characters are and what options are available to them. There's never an opportunity for us to compete on that level. I mean, for example, I've gotten Justice 2 and sometimes for these like daily challenges you have to do player versus player matches and I go into them and it's just a matter of time until I am defeated. And sometimes I'm like, let's just get this over with. This guy isn't killing me fast enough. (laughs) Because <laughs> I don't play it with any interest in the competitiveness of it. I'm basically just playing that game so I can unlock more costumes. Yes, I'm that guy. But isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's a mascot fighter. It's all your favorite characters. Like you're, you're playing that game to see more art. Yeah. Yeah. This game, though, the way it's designed is it means, like, we could be just as effective at this. So, I mean, yes, the more you play, the more you learn when to do what, but we're never going to struggle to do a move, mm-hmm. you know, like the the raging demon from Street Fighter, it, it's light punch, light punch forward, light kick, heavy punch to the right. Like I can't even remember. Okay, so that's that's Y and B, and this system means that everyone can play, and I think that's brilliant. And it's they, that's the reason this game should be getting more attention than I think really it is. You know, obviously neither of us have played it yet, but. On the face of it, it sounds kind of like the Mario Kart of fighting games. It sounds like it, yeah. yeah. Everyone can just pick it up. It's got a go button and a throw turtle shell button. Yeah. Dragon Ball Fighter, either Fighters or Dragon Ball Fighter Z. Again, still don't know which. We're Zed. We're Canadian. We're Zed. On. Yeah, but you hear the guy say Z. Anyway, it's out now, and it sounds like if you're into fighting games, or even if you're only casually into fighting games, really cool thing to play. And, of course, if you're a big fan of Dragon Ball, like, oh my god, it's so Dragon Ball. Everything about it, the art, the voice, check it out. If you're into Dragon Ball, you want to play this game. Number three on the list, sort of speaking of Injustice, um, this is a soft spot for Geek Top 5, because <laughs> we both love Red Sun. Um, short comic run. Is it considered a run, or is it just like a well, off? It was a, a three-issue miniseries. All right, short miniseries, which essentially, what if when Superman, you know, baby Superman landed on Earth, instead of landing in Kansas... He lands in the Soviet Union. Just to be fair, the DC version of What Ifs are Elseworlds. Elseworlds. Come on. (laughs) All right, fine. It's the story of Soviet Superman, and it's... I love this book. It's such a simple premise, you know? All All it is based on is the idea of what if the Earth was turned slightly differently when when Superman landed and all the consequences that follow it. Well, yes and no. I mean, the cheap way to do this would have been, like, he grows up in Russia during the Cold War but realizes it's wrong and comes over to America for the... But that's not what happens. This is a Superman with just a slightly different set of values. He's still a good guy. He's still a hero, but he's a Soviet hero. And what does that mean for the world? And that's what this explores. And it's great. Why are we talking about it? I mean, because it's awesome, and you should read it. But uh, Bruce Tim from Warner Brothers says he wants to do it as an animated film. Right. So, and, I mean, that in itself is, is notable, except for the fact that they do, you know, two or three of these animated films a year at this point. And, and now they're delving into some of the more acclaimed storylines to, to uh, adapt. And they've been a bit hit and miss. Right, like true. There have been as many bad, but the good ones are good. Yeah, but we just don't want another Killing Joke, right? Well, yes, the Killing Joke was not so good. Again, the Killing Joke was fine. The extra bit they stuck in front of it. We've talked about this in a previous episode, right? Um, it was fine, but that still reads better as a book. But still, this is such a great story, and it's something that I would love to see on the screen. They have early in the first issue the line, like it's 
like the way they have Superman, he's fighting for truth, justice in the American way. In this one, it's he's the champion of the common worker who fights a never-ending battle for Stalin, socialism, and the international expansion of the Warsaw Pact. Like, it's the same sort of schlocky, like, diner-era propaganda, but from the other side. It's so much fun. And, I mean, one of the interesting quirks is because Superman isn't in the States to make sort of Lex Luthor a villain. Lex Luthor is kind of the hero of the piece. He's the American hero anyway. Yeah, but the Americans aren't always the good guys. And, I mean, that's what's so great about it. All these shades of gray, you know? It's it's uh, great. Luther ends up marrying Lois. Jimmy Olsen is his vice president and a CIA agent, and, right? And the the there's also all these other variations on your favorite DC characters. Uh, like I think Wonder Woman stays in in uh, in on Paradise Island, and uh, she has they get sort of brought into the fight. Batman is a terrorist. It's, that is a whole other thing we got. We can't talk about Red Sun without talking about Soviet Batman right. and his like bat the the bat Ushanka the, the Russian ear flap hat. But no, like Soviet terrorist Batman is great. Like in this one, it's like his parents are killed for distributing anti-Marxist propaganda, <laughs> and so he grows up like, like you know hating the the whole communism thing, and he's oh it's. Again, and it's Batman. It's still Batman. He's still a vigilante, but with this weird twist that makes him not quite the same character. Right. And this is by... The original series is by Mark Miller with art by Dave Johnson and Killian Plunkett. It, it was it was a great series, and, and this was just before... or Well, at the peak, I think, of Mark Miller's uh, mainstream comic book success and fame, you know, working for Marvel and DC. And he, he really made his name with, with Marvel, with the Ultimates and his run on Ultimate X-Men. Uh, and then beyond that, he created Kick-Ass and uh, the um, Kingsman series and all these things that have become these very successful movies and now he's working for Netflix. But this was, I think it was when he was kind of still trying, you know, a lot of his later stuff. Like Kingsman is a fun movie, but it's like, what if James Bond was cooler or something? Like, there's not much of a twist to it. Right. Whereas this, every detail is really thought out. And it's like, it starts with this seemingly simple premise and it just spins into this amazing yarn and has the greatest twist ending to Yeah, it. That's, that's my pretty... favorite part. And I don't want to spoil it, but man, it is worth reading just for this brilliant twist at the end. It's worth reading the whole thing, but yes, yes. the twist is good. And the, the outfit, like the gray Superman outfit with the hammer and sickle instead of the S. Yeah. Like just, mwah. <laughs> and, you know, the Batman outfit, as yeah. we discussed. And, yeah, Ushanka Batman. You have a figure of that somewhere, don't you? I used to. It's uh, It's gone missing from one move or another. Ah, that stinks. Anyway, Red Sun, um, nothing about that has been confirmed. Um, I will shamelessly say that the, one of the reasons we're mentioning this is to get you into it. Because you know, if, if there's some sort of like measuring of how interested the fans are, we want you to be interested. <laughs> if you haven't read Red Sun yet, check it out. If you are illiterate for some reason, <laughs> fingers crossed this comes out because you'll have to watch it because it's so good. Number two. Uh, real World, which we don't talk about too often. Not since the early days of Geek Top 5. Yeah, back when we still cared about the real world. <laughs> um, so we're cloning monkeys now, guys. Yeah. Yeah. So researchers in China uh, have used SCNT, uh, the same cloning method they used to make Dolly the Sheep. Those of you who are our age will remember when that was a big deal. They've cloned a couple of macaque monkeys. Um, making them the first primates really to be cloned by this method, which is cool. Mm-hmm. You can clone monkeys. And there's, they're talking about, like, there's a lot of research applications. And I can understand maybe you're against animal testing. I understand that. But in this case, what they're talking about, it's, it helps you track differences, and it's going to help them figure out stuff behind human disease, between drug screening. There's all kinds of cool stuff. Um, the reason why geeks are reacting, of course, is because there's not a lot of differences between monkeys and humans. Right. Um, and one of the researchers in this thing was quoted as saying, quote, There is now no barrier for cloning primate species, thus cloning humans is closer to reality. However, our research purpose is entirely for producing non-human primate models. Uh, we absolutely have no intention, and society will not permit this work to be extended to humans. I mean, it's Which, easy to say that. Exactly. It's easy to say that. Once the technology's there, it feels like it's, it's only a matter yeah, of time. This is the cloning equivalent of, no, 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 I didn't inhale. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another 90s staple. <laughs> yeah, we're kind of stuck there, aren't we? <laughs> um, what everyone is worried about is if we're getting closer to human cloning. And to be fair, on a scientific level, this is the same way, like, whenever they successfully teleport, like, you know, the quantum state of an atom, everyone writes a Star Trek story, like, oh, soon we're going to be beaming to each other's houses. No, that's not that. It's not the same thing. But it's a step closer and yeah. if and you're it's a big step closer it's a big step closer and if you're a geek if you're listening to this podcast you're the kind of person who's been into the science fiction of cloning and knows that that opens a lot of interesting questions yeah. we've seen this examined both like in, for entertainment purposes in science fiction and literally as you know, traditional science fiction like what does that mean you know what what rights does a human clone have and along those lines, I mean, something that hasn't been quite as widely reported with this is that I, I think these were the 80th attempt at these, and the previous ones had lived up to six months at most before dying. They, it sounds like the the ones that lived at all did not have good lives. They didn't, yeah, didn't really want to be there. No, and this was, I think there were a hundred uh, monkeys in this test subject that were to be born, and these were the only two out of that batch to survive. I mean, it's like, it's it's not pleasant to think about the what goes into it. And and if, I would like to hope we can all agree that, that visualizing these little monkeys suffering and dying in less than six months is horrible. But even if you can't find that horrible, hopefully the idea of that happening with humans horrifies you, right? Like, like if this is how long it took to get the apes right, if they start doing it with humans, there's going to be a lot of messed up, deformed humans that are going to have very short, painful lives, all in the service of what? Like, what is going to be the outcome of these clones? Yeah. And and again, and that's what sort of we you know, we examine through science fiction. Um, the first example that came to my mind was that horrible the island right. with Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson. It wasn't horrible, but uh, it was um, really good by Michael Bay standards. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> um, the twist at the end of that movie was that all the these characters were were clones. Uh, it, like basically, it was a business that would, would make a clone of famous people or important people rich to people. be a rich people to serve as like like unknowing organ donors right they would just be harvested but yeah. they would up until that point they would live these sort of idyllic lives in this community where they couldn't exist yeah, they, they, they didn't know what else was going on yeah the, the twist was like that like like if, if you keep a clone like unconscious like it doesn't grow right or something so they right. had to live lives so they created this whole like matrixy kind of fake world doesn't matter it wasn't a great movie um but the concept was like so this was a company whose business was saying like we guarantee we'll always have a perfect replacement organ for you and that sounds great right mm -hmm. if we can create organs that your heart fails bam perfect heart replacement Awesome. Lungs, got it. Eyeballs, on it. The counter-argument being, well, what about the clone? Doesn't it deserve its heart and its lungs and its eyeballs? Like, But if you're only cloning those, I mean, that's... The, ideally, I think, if we could just clone eyes or lungs or, or organs or, or skin and not the whole thing... Right, but can you imagine the eyes room... Do you want I to don't walk want into to. the room? I do not want it's to. It's like, so here's all of our living eyes. <laughs> oh, and they just follow you as you walk right, through yeah, the room. Right, yeah, just like <laughs> these pillars covered in eyeballs. And they're like, don't don't worry about that. They're not, they don't actually see anything, but they're just uncontrollably following you as you walk in. Yeah. It's like a real Mona Lisa situation. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's funny, but... Ooh. It's very complicated. Yeah. You can see there's no answer and there's a lot of things to talk about. Um, which is one of the things that geeks are best at. <laughs> um, anyway, the, these monkeys have been cloned. It works. And it's not something that you can put back into the box. You know, cat's out of the bag. Yeah. Monkey's out of the bag. <laughs> so there's going to be more. And it's worth paying attention to. Because this is going to be like, you know, the next big debate before too long. So cycling out of really yeah. scary grown-up territory. Yeah, from the horrifying to the yeah. charming. <laughs> these are about as opposite as these two can get. <laughs> Room full of eyeballs. <laughs> this said... Cardboard Nintendo. Cardboard <laughs> Nintendo. On January 17th, Nintendo released a commercial, a trailer, out of nowhere. Uh, like the day before, they said they were coming out with something new and innovative. Nintendo announced Nintendo Labo. I'm assuming it's short for laboratory, um, yeah. but it's a, it's a fun word. Why not just call it Nintendo Lab? 
I'm probably, I, I don't know. That's a good question. What is Nintendo Labo, you say? Nintendo Labo is, so you've seen the Nintendo Switch. Portable thing. You can plug it into a TV. It's cool. You pick it up, and it's your screen with your two controllers on the side. Labos, Nintendo Labos will sell you these kits of what they call Toy-Cons. There's a fun play on their Joy-Con, for the word for controller, which are basically these sheets of cardboard with folding instructions on them and you build housings for the switch that do different things it's the key to this is that one of the many cool features of the switch is the gyroscopes and the motion detectors and stuff in it this goes back to the nintendo wii you remember when everybody wanted nintendo wii because it was just like real bowling right you you, do that bowling motion with the controller so the one they demo is actually one of the more complicated ones the first one in this trailer is a cardboard piano you fold up this cardboard piano, but you put the switch into it and the controllers into it, and the control like when you press down on the cardboard keys, the controllers know where you're touching, yeah. and the switch makes a piano noise. It's like the controllers have the, the sensors that project, and they can see where or what keys are going down. I just, like, it's mind-blowing. Yeah, the other one, they fold it into the shape of a fishing rod, and you put right. one of the controllers in there. So when you're pulling the crank on the fishing rod handle, like the controller knows it's moving, and on the screen, like, you're playing the fishing game. The one that appealed to me was this, of course, of course, was this big cardboard robot suit, and like you wear it. Yeah, you wear this suit, and you put the controllers in it, and then like, you know you're like moving around as the robot, like throwing a punch, and the switch knows that you're throwing a punch because the controller is in the cardboard thing in your arm, and the robot in the game does that. Now, my question with that one, and maybe uh, it was detailed. Somewhere, but I mean, why would you need the suit for that? Like, it feels like if if the sensors are following your where your hands are on the Joy Cons, like, why couldn't you just do it without the whole suit? Well, and that's it. The, you, of course, you can, mm-hmm. but it's more fun. Like the audience, like, I get it with the piano. I get why you would need physical stuff to show where the key, what keys you're hitting. I get it with the fishing rod. It makes it real tactile. You, you get the sense that you're actually fishing. Yeah. The, the reason they're doing it with the robot suit is because a target audience for this is like three and up. And well, when you're a kid... <laughs> and and considering you are the target audience, you are definitely in that range. Yeah, okay. Well, but that's fair. <laughs> but when you're a kid, like... I mean, and if this is something that I think parents maybe can identify with, like building stuff with your kids is cool. That's why Legos are so much fun. Now you're going to be building this cardboard robot, but then playing this cool, like, electronic, like, digital cardboard robot video game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's not the next Tekken. You know, it's not the next Call of Duty blops. It's, I can't, dis- the, the reason I keep stuttering here is because I can't decide if this is brilliant or insane. Uh, to me, it's well, it's definitely uh, it's audacious. There's a, certainly a level of genius to it. it. It's like, innovative. It it's... is beyond innovative. Like, no one saw this coming, I don't think. Like, it's so unique in the market. There's nothing else like it. No, which is what Nintendo does best. Right. It's what they've always done. Nintendo has never been afraid to innovate. But this is a weird hybrid of... I mean, I guess you would call it augmented reality in a way. Like, everyone else is trying to do it with glasses that, like, draw holograms. They're bringing their video games into the real world by, you know, just building these cool shapes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's not entirely selfless, of course. Um, The first couple of kits of these come out on April 20. Like, they're 60 and 70 bucks each. And considering, on the face of it, it's just cardboard. Yeah. Like, it comes with the software, too. Like, with with the game. You know, the fishing game that comes with the fishing rod or the mech suit game that comes with the robot suit. But, yeah, you're buying cardboard. And, and well, on the face of it, I can agree that that seems, like, if it was just cardboard, yes, that seems overpriced for cardboard. But imagine the time and thought and, and all of the minds that worked to in, come up with this. I think that's got to be worth a couple extra bucks. Oh, for sure. And think of, like, part of the fun you're going to get out of it is, you know, like, a, like you, know, you and your kids hanging around. I mean, maybe you listening to this are only three or four years old. I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's just you and your friends, like, building this cool toy. Trying to mix that, like, cool imagination and cool video game thing in a really new, unique way. And for that Target demo, that's... it's. It, I want to say so cool. It doesn't seem that cool to bitter jaded 33 year old me but i know if i was a kid like the age that i was when i was playing with lego 
It would that, every single variant of this would blow my mind. I would yeah. want the fishing rod. I would want the piano. I'd want the robot suit. I would want the car. This stuff, like I said, comes out April twenty. It ain't cheap. Um, and of course, once you're done, they're also will sell you these like ten dollar like customization kits, like stickers and right. colors and stuff. Because it's just cardboard colored. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm sure you have your own stickers. Sure. Um, but if you want the official Nintendo ones, you can get them. It's not a new console at all, but it's a weird new way to play with video games. And there's nothing to like you said. There's nothing to compare it to. It's very hard to predict how it'll do. In any case, that's coming out in a few months. We'll probably see if we can give it a shot. We'll let you know how it goes. But check this thing out if you haven't. It seems crazy. That was the news for Geek Top 5. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with our special guest today. Welcome to the second half of Geek Top 5. This week, we've got a bona fide comic book writer with us, Mr. Andrew Wheeler. Hello, <laughs> listeners. Well, Sure. <laughs> Thank you for joining us again. We talked to you briefly at Toronto Comic Con mm-hmm. ways back when, but good to have you on the show for a full... So we can pick your brain <laughs> for well, a full set of time. Thank you for having me. Just leave me with some brain at the end of it, please. <laughs> mm. So this week you've brought us a list of the top five LGBTQ superheroes. Yes, that's right. So before we launch into the list, did you kind of want to talk about why this, uh, so why, why this sprung to mind is the thing you wanted to address? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the the comic book series that I'm writing at the moment uh, is a book called Freelance, published by Chapter House Comics here in Toronto. The second season is is kicking off this year, um, and it's this golden age Canadian hero from the, created in the 1930s, who is this sort of globe-trotting adventurer type, sort of a Doc Savage type hero. And Chapter House, when they relaunched the character last year, made the decision to bring him up to date and make him a gay superhero. And that's why they brought me in as a gay writer to to write the series. So I wrote season one uh, with my good friend Jim Zub. Uh, he's now off writing some book called The Avengers. <laughs> yeah, called. yeah, so, some little known. Is it Steed and Peel? I, that I assume that's the only Avengers I can, <laughs> I can recall. So, um, so yeah, so he's a he's a little too busy. So season two is uh, is me writing solo with uh, artist Juan Samu and uh, season one artist Vineda Viriak on colors. Um, and it's a sort of lifetime ambition fulfilled for me because I've been advocating for, for queer superheroes uh, for as long as I've been on the internet making loud noises, you know. So uh, to, to get to write this character who's a, a public domain hero and a classic hero that's largely forgotten and, and make him contemporary and relevant, it's, it's a real thrill to do. So I, I haven't followed the original freelance character that much. Mm-hmm. Why do you think they chose to make that character uh, gay as opposed to some of the other characters they brought? I think part of it is that he is quite a sort of appealingly campy character. There's uh, So the, the creators, Ed Furness and Ted McCall, created this really sort of fun, globetrotting adventure with really a, a sort of very beautiful sort of uh, lead man who's, who's square-jawed and heroic but has sort of fluttering eyelashes and pouty lips um, and has a sort of... <laughs> there's a chemistry between him and the other male characters that appear in the series. So in theory... His traveling companions are a, a pirate named John and a, a spy named Natasha, and he's supposed to have sexual chemistry with Natasha. But in bringing it up to date, we've made the sexual chemistry be with John instead, and, and Tasha, as she's now called, is is their sort of uh, um, the, the adult in the room. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I think it was a case of this is a character that works for that, and they wanted they they wanted to do it. You know, it's a very Canadian value to to say, well, we're launching a new shared universe of superheroes. Captain Canuck is the the centerpiece of. That, that universe, but we want to reflect the the real world and the world of Canada today. And we've got this this golden age character who sort of fits the bill. Fantastic! That's really cool. So I guess do you want to uh, jump into the list? All right, yeah, let's okay. do it. Uh, so the the number five on my list of LGBTQ superheroes is America or Miss America Chavez, as uh, as she's more commonly called, who is a sort of a, a tribute, I guess, in her, in her own way, a tribute to a classic character, because she's inspired by the original Miss America, another wartime uh, superhero. Uh, but she has been brought uh, considerably up to date in the hands of... I would primarily attribute her, her modern update to Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey on Young Avengers, and that's the version of the character that I'm most familiar with, although there was also... The same character was first introduced 
in um, a Joe Casey story, I think it was. Yeah. And was a very different character, apart from the sort of super strength and the American uh, sort of outfits that you, you know, Stars and Stripes themed right. clothing. Yeah. Everywhere. So. <laughs> <laughs> like Stars and Stripes sunglasses. Yeah. She's got it all. She's got it all. <laughs> so, yeah, so for Young Avengers, they decided to sort of re envision this character and in the process made her uh, a gay superhero. Okay. She's she's the newest superhero on your list. Yep. Got a very diverse origin coming from, uh, uh, she has two mothers, right? Yep, yep. And she comes from another dimension, and uh, she travels all through all these other dimensions. So she's she's got uh, uh, quite a lot going on in her background, and uh, now she's in uh, the Marvel 616 universe, right? Yep, she's yep. primarily there. Which is the normal universe, essentially. Right. <laughs> right, okay. So how, what is it about her that makes her worthy of your list? Well, she kind of represents to me the sort of the modern fandom. There is a there's an emerging diverse fandom, and as a as a young woman and as a person of color and as a queer person, she represents all of those those people who didn't necessarily find their place in superhero comics of old. And so, by making her this high profile character and making her a kind of a part of the Captain America family of of heroes, because she's called America and she wears the and the I Star Spangled Banner. At one point, there's like a future version of her who is Captain America. I think that's I think. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so she's sort of de facto, you know, and and being on the Young Avengers, she represented the Captain America sort of position on that role that had been filled by Patriot in in the original right. Young Avengers. So yeah, she 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 belongs to a pretty uh, substantial lineage of heroes in the Marvel universe, but she definitely represents something very new and very contemporary. And she opens a door to to young fans, and young fans have responded to the character and have sort of clamoured for the character. And it's a shame that she, she has a, she had a solo series uh, by Gabby Rivera and Joe Canones, and it sadly didn't quite reach its audience. But I think in part that's because Marvel has been going through convulsions and hasn't been able to support the book as it should hmm. and didn't give the trade paperbacks time to, to find the audience, which is where the audience is for, for those new books, I think. That makes sense. So, so I think the audience is out there and Marvel hopefully will, will take another shot at, at trying to find them. So does this fall into the, the trend we've sort of been talking about where like, they've been trying to introduce new superheroes and they haven't really been catching on and that's why they've sort of shifted their focus to revising older superheroes? But even even in that regard, they they did that with Iceman. They revised, I mean, quote unquote, revised him to make him a, a gay character as well, and they gave him a solo title. And even that got got canceled. Yes, yeah. this uh, recent purge. But on the other hand, I don't know if an Iceman solo title has ever survived very long. Is well, there's never been an ongoing attempt before. Right. There was a mini series way back in the day where he was fighting, I think, Oblivion, who is this sort of. Galactus in a tablecloth, <laughs> very, <laughs> a very strange character, um, and it doesn't make any sense that Iceman would be pitted up against one of the sort of primal <laughs> forces of the universe, but that's what they did. Um, so, yeah, I just think at the moment the time is maybe not right for these series just because of how overextended Marvel is, just mm. how many books they have on the shelf. It's not a reflection on the series or their ability to reach an audience. It's a reflection on the fact that Marvel is just lacking clear focus and and has uh, i think has lost a little bit of faith with with retailers on the audience so all right well then let's uh let's keep it rolling then let's go up to to, uh, to number four um switching from america to canada so <laughs> so we're all for that yeah this this one it, it may disappoint people to know that i didn't put this guy at number one on my list but number four is north star uh jean-paul bobier the uh the first significant gay superhero in comics. Um, I would say really the first. People say Extraño maybe beat him to the punch, the DC sort of Doctor Strange pastiche. Mm. But I don't think he said the words before Northstar did. I think he was just... And he's, he's. I mean, I don't know how significant North well, no. Star is in the grand scheme of things, but he's certainly more significant than Extraño <laughs> yeah, by far. Yeah, I think that's the case. Um, and North Star also was believed to be gay long before he did come out like it wasn't a, a shock when he came out there had been talk like i remember being aware that he was a gay character before he said the words or certainly that there had been controversy around it so he was known to be gay before extraño was he came out before extraño did so right. i think he still takes the the credit there right from if, I, if i've got it right he came out in 1992 mm -hmm. uh, but my understanding is like there was some effort to do that beforehand and they had a little bit of trouble convincing marvel the um, the 
big wigs there. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like John Byrne, who another Canadian gentleman who created <laughs> the character, uh, had intended for, for him to be gay and just had a hard time getting it on the page. But he tried to make hints to it anyway. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I should mention also Pied Piper, I think, came out before North Star, but was still a sort of reformed villain at the time. Okay. People will write in otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't mention Pied Piper. So, yeah, North Star... John Byrne tried to establish the character as gay and was going to give him uh, HIV. And so there was a storyline where he was he was sick and they didn't know why he was sick. And I, th- I don't know if it's going to be real HIV or like a fictional version Superhero. Like, like the legacy virus. Mutant HIV. But what it ended up being was that, oh, he had he was half fairy. Right. And he was sick because he was far away, far away from his own domain. And I can't remember how they retconned all of that out again. I think it was Loki lied to everyone. But right. That seems like a ridiculously insensitive way to... <laughs> I mean, on yeah. both levels. Yeah. Like, having yeah. one of the first gay characters get HIV, and then on the other hand, have him be half fairy. I mean, it just like... It's it's not the sort of thing you want to see straight creative teams sort of bungle their way through. Really. Well, I don't think you want to see any creative <laughs> team bungle their way through that. It's like, there's no upside to, yeah. to those character yeah. developments. So, but fortunately, Northstar managed to... to get uh, uh, properly established as a gay character. It was a terrible issue, a Scott Lobdell issue. I forget who the artist was, but it was all around atrocious, but it was still a, a landmark, a sort of milestone for, for Marvel. And then he disappeared for the next, like, 20 years, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but one, of the, in, one of the downsides of being part of Alpha Flight, you tend to <laughs> disappear. Yeah, being, being a gay superhero and being in Alpha Flight are yeah. two things that sort of count against you, I think, for the, the wider Marvel universe. But in the... the more contemporary times, it's actually worked for him, whereas a lot of Alpha Flight is relegated to, I don't know, to nothingness. Yeah. He has been a regular member of the X-Men, and he even made quite the sales boom when he got married. In yes. A, yeah. a, a astonishing X-Men 51, I think it is? Uh, about that, yeah, that sounds yeah. right. Um, yeah, it, it, he, he has been lucky that yeah, in being a gay superhero, they sort of decided that he was important to Marvel's pantheon and that he deserved a place on the X-Men. But, I mean, it sort of, he comes and goes right. from, from the, those books. Um, the marriage is something that I, I wasn't a big fan of at the time. And I think, I mean, I you know, I <laughs> gay marriage is, is something that we've all been fighting for and advancing for for years. And, of course, Canada was one of the first countries to have it. So maybe it's appropriate that a Canadian superhero was was one of the first <laughs> in comics to, to get married. But marriage, I'll, I'll get Spider-Man fans angry at me for saying this, but marriage does tend to shut down story paths for characters, especially if you're a an ensemble character. Right. Spider-Man has the advantage of there always has to be a book about him. North Star doesn't have that benefit. So if you marry him off you're really sort of cutting down on, on his opportunities for stories. Um, and I think we've seen that. We haven't seen a lot of North Star stories again since since Astonishing X-Men. So. It's true. I also think getting him married to someone without superpowers also limits him. Because yes. it's not like they can't have adventures together. Yeah. Right. Okay, so yes, yeah, so this was... The, like, he's the one who's he's paired off with um, Aurora a lot. That's right? his but, twin which sister. Which is his twin sister. Yeah. So when you have two superheroes working together... That you can write stories yeah. for. Yeah, right. Uh, so maybe it's just the civilian in the mix that damages it more than the... And also, if it's your sister, you can you can fall out. You know, the, the, a sibling relationship is one that can have tensions in it without destroying the relationship. Right. Whereas a marital relationship, if you push things too far, the marriage ends. So, um, And also, they had to touch to use their powers for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> very wonder twins. Yeah. Uh, the, the other... Thing. I, I'm sort of of two minds when it comes to superhero marriage because people say it didn't work for Spider-Man, but it did work for like 30 years. They managed sure. to, to get to milk the... That's, that's a lot story. of marriages don't last that long. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Superman is still married despite the new 52. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, right, I suppose, technically. <laughs> well, he's, he's, they have a son now, too, yeah. who, which, you know, hit... At the right time for me, I just had a son. It's a, like a very, uh, I you know. Cats on the cradle, the yes, silver spoon. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I can definitely see the benefits to a superhero being married. Uh, there are interesting stories to be told there, but uh, maybe maybe those stories have been told. I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, I just don't think those sto- stories are going to be told with North Star right now. Right. Know? It's and, and it becomes, the, the my main objection, especially for a gay character in marrying them off, is 
it becomes a way to sort of desexualize the character. Mm. If you're if you if mm. they're in a if they're locked into a relationship, then they're not romancing someone. They're not pursuing someone, and that's an important part. Of, that's an important dynamic in storytelling. That's an important part of having a character be attractive or or um, a a sort of romantic lead. Yeah, you don't really think of Reed Richards or Sue Storm as being romantic leads. Exactly, and so when you've right. got one of the premier gay superheroes, and you're saying, well, let's not have him dating around. Let's lock him into you know monogamy and and something uh normative then it then it takes that away a little bit and that mm. was that was disappointing for me and again people will say well marriage can be romantic yes it can but it, it tends not to be in fiction right you know, people tend not to write stories about the romance of marriage so speaking of same-sex marriage mm. let's move on to number three in our list and uh, the first major controversy in this corner that I was aware of uh, from being far outside of comics. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so, uh, number three uh, is DC Comics' Batwoman, Kate Kane, um, who, yes, was almost going to get married to Maggie Sawyer, and then it did not happen because, I mean, they decided that it, it wasn't the right direction to go in for the character. And I guess I have to say I agree because... That's that's been my position. <laughs> yeah, although the, the creative team walked out yeah. as a result of that, yeah. which and it was a, a a gay writer on the book, I believe. So I think it was Mark Andreco was writing. I think it was James Williams the third who was writing at that point with another gentleman, uh, W. Hayden Blackman. Oh, okay. Right. So it wasn't. So it was maybe Mark Andreco who they gave it to immediately. Oh, that could be. That could be why. I'm thinking of his name. So hard to hard to follow George Williams III done. Um, yeah, usually as an artist, but in any regard, I think he's quite the uh, the talent. Yeah, and also Batwoman was kind of his character. You know, yeah, he he put his imprimatur on that character from from early on, along with Greg Rucker. Um, the character was created sort of by committee by a bunch of people. Devin Grayson was one of the the hands in the pot, um, but it was Rucker and Williams that sort of first told her story on on the page. Um, and she was the first major queer superhero to lead a solo ongoing title, which was Detective Comics at the time. And for a, a while, like she had a good run on that, and it was it was popular enough to yeah. sustain, which is also sort of unusual for characters like this, especially new characters, right? I mean, she's not really new, but she's more new than not than the one you know from I mean. the fifty six. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's a she's a version of a classic character, um, but. Not anyone that anyone had really heard of or cared about. No, and, well, yeah, and I don't think she's in continuity with that. No, I don't think previous so. version. Yeah, and I think a lot of people when they think about like they're going to think of Batgirl. Part of the problem is the difference in the names here and what that you know, all the hidden meanings that that has. But also, just Batgirl is the much larger character. I think yeah. the more well known, and then with the whole with Killing Joke and the Oracle and all yeah. that jazz, like that's a more well known story. Um, I, doing the research for this, I had to double check I was looking at the right character. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the interesting things about her that it gave it made me realize that maybe DC had done a, a better job with uh, queer representation than Marvel has done. What with with Batwoman having such a successful run and Maggie Sawyer being a main character in yep. both Gotham Central and the Superman books, and Renee Montoya having had this incredible run from being created for the animated series to being this prominent character in in the DC universe now and they've all it's all been done where the characters are that their sexuality is important to them but it's not their defining feature you know what i mean it's like yeah it's a sort of it's a grown up way of of telling stories is that you don't have to make it about you know you don't want to make sexuality into a gimmick for any of these characters but you do want to treat it as a real part of their lives you don't ignore yeah. it um you don't you don't sort of write around it you incorporate it into the story but the stories don't always have to be about that they can be i think especially in the right creative team's hands um you know i i very came very close to including renee montoya on this list because gotham central half a life by greg rucker and michael lark is i think one of the the best stories about queer identity and and the struggle of the closet right. that's been told in a superhero comic certainly and probably in comics full stop but the, the real reason Renee doesn't make the list for me is that I prefer her as a non-superhero character. Mm. You know, she became the question. She became a superhero. But to me, as a civilian, as a detective, she's a much more compelling character. That is very interesting. That was one of the questions I had. I was like, where's Renee? <laughs> Such a great character. And I, I, I've been 
advocating for years that uh, that would make a great TV show, Gotham Central. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, Gotham absolutely. Gotham is, like, the camp version of what it could be. <laughs> like, it could, should be a real gritty, like, Wire-esque so, show. That so, just, like, you want Gotham CSI, essentially? <laughs> I want Gotham the Wire. I, that's what I want. Like, right. it could be a really good show. But I digress. So, <laughs> so tell us a bit more about Batwoman. Like, what sets her apart from Batman? What's what's her deal? I mean, I think they've done a good job of establishing her as as part of this, you know, big Bat family, and yet letting her have her own identity. And part of that is that she is she's the other adult in the in the room. You know, she's the other grown up member of the Bat family. Um, but she's quite independent. You know, she in in the most recent. Detective run. She's leading a team with with Batman or for Batman. I haven't read all of those issues, but that that sort of you know it, it's proof of DC's determination to keep that character present in in the universe. But she butts heads with Batman. She's she's not one of his underlings or one of his wards or however you want to define them. Um, she is an independent character who yes adopted the same symbol, but also you know her style is completely as different as it could be. For someone who is who's dressed as a bat and f- swooping around Gotham, yeah. so you know that striking red on black and the sort of the the style of her her ears, her cape, um, the graphic on her chest, they speak to a very really strong aesthetic that tells you who this is and that they are related to Batman, but they are not Batman. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, that she's been able to sort of take root in in the DC universe is that she she looks like her own character. Um, and yeah, and she's got she's got a passion to her. That red sort of represents that she is an angry person. That she is uh, she she represents that sort of she's being a woman, being uh, a gay woman. She has experiences and and struggles that Batman hasn't experienced. You know, Batman is the ultimate privileged uh, superhero in some regards. So Batman is 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 uh, the wealthy playboy, and and Batwoman does also have. I think a, a, a rich family, but she she's been through the military. She's been through hardship. Um, she was drummed out of the military. She's you know struggled with her identity. So she has a, a more she she has more righteous indignation behind her, and I think that that comes through and, and helps define the character. All right. Yeah, I don't we, think we can cover it any better. Yeah. Than that. <laughs> yeah. All right, number two on the list. Yes, this, this is the one on the list I had never heard of. Really? Oh, really? Oh, man, I'm going to lend you my authority comments. Okay. <laughs> All right, tell me about this character. All right, um, so the number two character is Midnighter. He is another DC character. He was created by Warren Ellis and Brian Hitch um, in, I guess, the very late 90s or early 2000s. Yeah. I've got 98. 98. Uh, in Stormwatch number four. Yeah. So, and this was a, a great Wildstorm series. It 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 was a, a superheroes as sort of militant task force, and then it became the Authority, which was a sort of pastiche on uh, superhero power through through a sort of satire of the JLA, I guess you could say. And Midnighter and Apollo were specifically the the, the Batman and Superman analogs of the team. It, it's not totally clear whether they were meant to be gay from the beginning. I don't think that they totally were meant to be gay from the beginning, but I was there on the Warren Ellis forum. So this was back back then, 98, and, and maybe a few years before, Warren Ellis had his own uh, message boards. And I was on those boards when, when his Stormwatch run happened and when the Authority launched. And he introduced the characters of Midnighter and Apollo, and in their very first appearance, the very first panel, they're in a warehouse and they're both naked. And they're putting on their costumes. And I and a few other people on the boards looked at that and were like, wait, are these guys, what were they doing a couple of panels before? Because <laughs> right. this, is, this, is, this is interesting. And I don't know if that was intentional because years later I, I spoke to Brian Hitch in a, in a bar and asked him, why did you draw them naked on their first appearance? Was that in the script where you directed, did you know that they were gay? And he said, no, I didn't know they were gay. I drew them naked because I didn't have enough room to show them taking off their clothes before <laughs> putting on other clothes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have a phone booth, essentially. Exactly. They were right. in a warehouse. And, and, yeah, they, I think just, if they were doing that together in a phone booth, it would just let them Yeah, That would be controversial. Har har. So, um, so, yeah, so I, but a bunch of us at the time, you know, gay superhero fans uh, saw these characters introduced and thought well they, they could be lovers they could be boyfriends and petitioned Warren Ellis to, to establish that and I emailed him at the time he didn't reply to my email but, <laughs> but I did say to him look it would be really 
huge if you did this. It would be a significant thing if you established these characters as gay. Um, and sure enough, in, in due course, it was established. And while it took a long time for things like uh, a kiss to appear on the, the page or for, for them to even say out loud that they loved each other, all of that feels like ancient history now. And this is Midnight on Apollo, a very well-established um, gay characters now occupying a space in the the DCU proper rather than the Wildstorm yeah, universe. Yeah, I didn't know that at the the time. I, I started reading Authority, and I think I came to it knowing that they were a gay couple, yeah. so I just always read it as them being a gay couple. And the, the kiss and the I love you, that stuff didn't even occur to me. They yeah. just seemed like that's who they were. Yeah, at the time we were, I think we just felt like we were waiting <laughs> and waiting, and it felt, I can't remember how long it took to establish those things. You know, it feels like a long time when when you're waiting for it and when it's never happened before. yeah. Um, but it was a big deal, especially because of who Midnighter is as a character, because he is he is a Batman analog. He is a sort of hyper masculine character, and there's a there's a lot we can get into about the politics of masculinity and femme versus butch in the the queer community. But uh, but it's a, a valid thing to have a um, hyper masculinity as for a gay character, especially one who kind of dresses like a, a fetish character you know there is a there is yeah, a yeah. there's a lot of leather and straps and stuff going on there and it's interesting to have this character that sort of that rep that looks hyper masculine but also represents queer butch mm. you know that's a specific idea and one that i think is very interesting to see made explicit on the comic book page you know a lot of these image comics and the the superhero universes that have been created after the DC and Marvel universes have been established, the new characters tend to be reflective of the the iconic ones. Yeah. Like, every universe has its Superman, and all of them are a commentary one way or another on Superman, or, you know, they've got their Batman commentary on Batman. And this was such an interesting take, because it wasn't just like, oh, look, this is something Superman wouldn't do, and this is something we can do because he's not Superman. It was taking these two iconic characters, yeah. basically Superman and Batman, and putting them into a relationship. And it felt taboo, but also really interesting to explore. Yeah, and I think there is a, there's a subversiveness to all the best sort of gay characters, that mm. they, they have to be that to, to sort of to exist, to, because they, their existence is supposed to challenge something. It's supposed to um, be a break from the status quo. So... Yeah, Midnight as as the the explicitly gay Batman is a, is a big deal, and you know obviously there is a long history to reading Batman as a coded queer character, as a coded gay man that goes back to Frederick Wortham's terrible fear mongering in Seduction right. of the Innocent. <laughs> mm. um, so so you know there, there's also that side of it that he's that it's taking a subtext and making it text at a time when we can finally say you know what this isn't going to corrupt anyone yeah <laughs> and it's a new way to tell uh, interesting stories yeah. you know i mean superheroes have been around for what 80 90 years now and uh and these are stories that we haven't seen over and over again yeah. Yeah. so shall we go to number one number one on the list so you had heard of number one on the list i have heard of number one on the that, list i mean that's more surprising to me than, than, than <laughs> not hearing of midnight <laughs> we we grew yeah. up with 90s x-men so, okay yeah you know. <laughs> Um, that's good to know. And I mean, we talked to we talked to Fabian for the show, and right. I, you know, and there's always a lot of research yeah. around Liefeld these days. Fabian, you know, don't say my last name wrong, or he'll be angry. <laughs> yeah, we're still terrified. <laughs> Try <laughs> it's months later. <laughs> anyway, please. So uh, yeah, number one uh, is going to be a surprise to some, but people listening may have worked it out from those two creator <laughs> names. Number one on my list is Shatterstar, uh, created by Rob Liefeld, and I'm going to say Fabian Nicieza. Let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Shatterstar is a sort of, you know, he was a joke character for a long time. He had a mullet when he was first introduced. He is very 90s, but that's why he, he makes number one on my list. And, you know, this is, this is a personal list. It's not an objective truth No, no, list. it's objective. <laughs> <laughs> and as a lifelong Marvel Comics fan, I, I had to put a Marvel guy at number one. And, and Shatterstar is my out-there choice for the character that I would most like to, to do a work-for-hire um, book on if I were to do a, a Marvel or a DC gig then Shatterstar would be my number one choice because I think he's a lot of fun um, he's got this whole sexy swashbuckling showman thing going on that, that makes him hugely appealing he's quite unique in his weird powers and the, the double swords and all of that stuff is it's kind of it's campy and it, the most important thing to me is the fact that he was established as a, a bisexual character 
in a way that sort of undercut a lot of the machismo of the 90s that he was a product of. Mm. By having him be in love with another guy, you you take something away from the sort of culture of toxic masculinity that, that I feel he kind of comes out of. Right, with the and, pouches and the swords and the yeah. stabbing. Yeah. And, the, the cable, essentially. Yeah. You can he, say it. He belongs to an era which in which people uh, a lot of people didn't feel welcome to be part of comics and to then use him and say, oh, he's a he's a guy who loves a guy, really helps sort of open the doors a little bit and helps make makes the character a lot more interesting to my mind and also makes the character more uh, appealing and, and uh, attractive to a broader audience. Now, I I've, I read all of Peter David's uh, mm-hmm. recent X-Factor run. I read a, a bunch of stuff. And I, in doing research for this, I'd forgotten that they had somehow established that he was his own grandfather. <laughs> you know, his, his father is Longshot. And then also his own DNA was the template for Longshot through time travel and stuff. Yeah. It's so bizarre. But he <laughs> is a really fascinating character. And I think Peter David did a lot of really good work with him. That maybe the character hadn't earned based on his earlier years. Yeah, you know, it's part of that the, the the principle that there's no such thing as a bad character. You just have to find your way in. And I think Peter David has always, for for whatever his uh, uh, flaws may be, he's always been good at finding the value in characters that other people discard. So, and you know, all credit to him for for doing that for for reinventing Shatterstar that way. The the gayness or or in actually bisexuality or omnisexuality of of uh, of Shatterstar was something that was established in, in the same way that it was with Northstar years earlier. There were stories written that sort of hinted that he had amorous feelings towards Richter early on, but they didn't have the permission to to pursue those stories. Right. Um, so, so the the fact that when it was established, some people were surprised by it is sort of part of the course. I mean, uh, with Iceman as well, people yeah. were surprised, but but longtime fans of the character that are attuned to this stuff were all like, "No, that's that's had, always been there." It had been seeded for yeah. a while, but I think less so with Richter. Right? Like Richter was pretty straight in early stories. Like he had a relationship with with uh, Rain yeah. and uh, the Wolf's Bane and uh, some others, but I think there was always a closeness between those two characters. Yeah, basically the, the big shock of the Shatterstar-Richter relationship was that Richter reciprocated um, mm. because the yeah. idea that Shatterstar was in love with Richter has, was there and their closeness was there. And I think when, when Peter David had them kiss... The idea was not that they were kissing for the first time, but that they had had a relationship and we'd just never seen it mm. on the page before. And and that was, I think, a nice way to, to handle it rather than having to have some awkward Richter coming out um, scene, although he did then have to talk to his girlfriends and explain to them the situation. And a lot of people reacted sort of with, with anger or disbelief that you could do that because, you know, any time a character that's previously previously been established as... Uh, straight or primarily uh, interested in heterosexual relationships um, gets established as primarily gay or exclusively gay, and I think Richter is exclusively gay, whereas Shatterstar is not. Yeah, there's there's a resentment that that could be done like that's a retcon, but in real life, most people you know who come out as queer are prior to that not established as queer. Like, that's real life. Right. People who don't tell you they're gay, one day do tell you they're gay. And it's not that they became gay when they told you. They were always gay, they just never told you. (laughs) And even if they had relationships with women and then realized, no, I'm not interested in women, I'm only interested in men, uh, that's a real and valid human life experience. And that is a thing that you will come across in your life. So for a character like Richter to go through that is true to life. And to, to resent that is to resent reality, you know? Now, by that same token, I mean, like, my understanding is that with, with Shatterstar, that wasn't exactly Liefeld's intention. <laughs> um, so in that case, then, like, I does guess... It, does I, it I matter, though? Well, that's what I'm asking. I don't know if this is a subjective or an objective question, but I guess from your point of view, does that not take away from the character, but it, does it create a weird dichotomy in your mind? Like, well, when Liefeld was writing it, the character wasn't like this. Mm-hmm. Like, does that sort of exist in headcanon? I think, you know, with superheroes, the the idea that the version that another writer had in their head is is definitive is something that we had we've had to let go of a long time ago in all other circumstances. You know, the there are layers and layers of mythology that have been placed on a character like Superman um that in theory have always been there. Kara has always existed. As, uh, in, in terms of the DC universe, but Kara didn't exist when Superman was created. So does that invalidate Kara, or does that invalidate 
what we know about Superman in those early stories. I don't think it does. So it's frustrating that Liefeld responded by saying that he would try and... I think he said he would try and fix this mm. with his words when he got the chance. And Joe Casado at the time said, look, as long as I'm editor-in-chief, you're not going to fix this. This is not going to change. And we're now two editor-in-chiefs on from there, and hopefully you know, they understand what an incredible PR disaster it would be <laughs> And to, I think Leifeld has worked on him since then, and uh, as far as I know, nothing has, has changed. Yeah, I think he's doing a, a, a Deadpool story with him in. Right at the moment, I don't know when that, or maybe it has come out, or maybe it's coming out. I don't, I didn't see and if I, it did. I think but, it's fine for him to, if if he doesn't address it or contradict it directly, if he just doesn't refer to it in the story, I think that 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 is fine too, right? Sure, like, I think yeah. so. You know, it, it, I, the last thing I want is a writer who can't do the work trying to to force their way through it. Mm-hmm. So if Rob Liefeld doesn't want to write a gay romance. I'm okay with that, as long as someone that does and can is given that opportunity. Right. All right, well, we're coming up on time, unfortunately. Uh, but that was fantastic. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having um, me. We've, t- we've taken a look at a couple of your stuff on the show before, but is there anything you want to update us on, anything that people want to keep an eye out for if they want to look out for your stuff? Yeah, so the, the second season of Freelance, uh, it's a four-issue series. Um, so, yeah, so issue one should be out in February um, of a, a new four-issue arc. Juan Samu is doing fantastic work on, on the art, um, so I'm very excited for people to, to discover uh, or rediscover that series. You can also check out uh, my novel series, also published by Chapter House, which is uh, Valentin and the Widow, which I describe as Downton Abbey meets James Bond. And that is the first volume of that is uh, available from the Chapter House website and from all good booksellers at the moment, and that's a, a lot of pulpy fun. Uh, if you're looking for a, a, a handbag-sized holiday read, I, uh, I highly recommend it. Um, so, yeah, those are my two big uh, projects at the moment. Oh, and sorry, and where can people find you on your social media? Uh, best place to find me is always on Twitter, where I'm uh, talking too much, and I am at Wheeler, W-H-E-E-L-E-R. So How did you snag that one? I got in early. Nice. <laughs> good call, good call. Andrew Wheeler, thank you again for joining us. Additional thanks go out to the Geek Top 5 staff, to Stella Simeonova, our webmaster, for getting this all together where you can hear it, and to Jamie Reum, our musician-in-chief. That's R-E-A-U-M-E. You can find him at Jamie Reum Official on Twitter and on his podcast, Originals and Covers and Beyond. We don't get to talk a lot about geeky music stuff on this show. That's where you can find it. They're fantastic. Um, this has been Geek Top 5. You know where to reach Mr. Wheeler if you like, but we'd also love to hear from you too. If you think there's any additions you'd make to the list, anything you would change, or anything else you want to say, all kinds of ways that you could get in touch with us. You can email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash geektop5. We're also on Twitter at geektop5. And you can also leave us a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Geek Top 5, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you again in just a couple of weeks.